0: what's up witches
1: hi i'm claudia and i'm jess and welcome to true crime coven episode one named as such because we are two self-described witches yeah and we thought we'd get together and talk about some true crime
2: cases yeah something we both enjoy yeah both enjoy being a witch (laughs) I mean, we don't enjoy crime, but enjoy <laughs> but the, just like the journey listen- of it. <laughs> yeah, just
1: like you listening to it, we have an interest in it, be that a healthy one at least. Yes. We are also going to occasionally talk about ghost stories and the occult and maybe some cryptids.
2: Yeah.
1: Jess is going in pretty much blind. Every week she's going to know a little bit.
2: Yeah. And I'm going to come in and hopefully tell her a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Basically you're teaching me and I'm just here for the genuine reaction of the listener. I'll be noddling along, but that's not noddling. great. Noddling. <laughs> Nodding along,
1: but it's not great for a podcast, is it? <laughs> yeah, maybe don't nod. And in case you can't tell, we are not here to try and glorify crime or to sit and revel about the nope. gory details. We just have a fascination with it, as many people do in the world. Um, I think because none of us can imagine how these crimes happen. Mm. And, I think it's just something that completely fascinates people. It's the unknown. Yeah. We also will be talking about ghosts and stuff because we quite like spooky stuff. And we do just (laughs) want to say as well that throughout this podcast, despite what we're talking about, we do want this to be a safe, inclusive space for everyone. Mm. So we are going to strive to use proper terminology and always refer to people respectively, use inclusive terms, trigger warnings. But we're human. We might sometimes get this wrong. We don't know everything by a long stretch, <laughs> we always welcome feedback when we have used yeah. the wrong term or if we've just said anything that upsets someone, please let yeah. us know. And yeah, don't don't keep it in. Let us know. We'll strive to do better. So, Jesse, you ready to get into the, the first episode? I am. Episode? The first... So
2: ready. I can't remember what I've actually told you. I think you've just said it's a crime. About... <laughs> it's a crime. It's a crime and it involves... Someone killing people. Wow. Hence the crime part of it. Ah, uh, Um, yeah, I think that's about it. So, Jess, you ready to talk about Las
1: Cruz's bowling alley massacre? Oh,
2: yes. That's... That sounds pretty
1: yeah, it's, gruesome. It, yeah. This case actually really upset me the first time I heard mm. it. And I think that's why I chose to go for it first, because I listen to a lot of true crime. Yeah. So I was on my way home from a night shift. Mm. Um, which might have been why I was a bit more emotional than usual. Yeah. And I was listening to a podcast I love called Crime Junkie. Mm. And they covered this case. And there is a bit that has a 911 call from a child. Mm. Um. And I was crying so badly, I thought I might have to pull my car over. Wow. So I think it stuck with me. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to cover this case, because it just was so in my mind. Mm-hmm. Basically, the trigger warning for this is that it is a crime that involves violence and, and murder towards children, sadly. And it is quite a heart wrenching 911 call made by a child. Mm. Um, and if this is something you don't feel up for listening to, I completely understand. And we will give you a little heads up and I will let you know when it's safe to come back and join us. Additionally, if you feel like you don't want to listen to something that involves any violence towards children, I completely get that as well feel free to catch us on our next episode. It's not graphic. I'm not no, going to go into
2: 20. I was going to say we're going in quite heavy on the first episode. Yeah. No, I like but, it.
1: You know. The town of Las Cruces is the second largest city in the US state of New Mexico. And if you look at a map, it's pretty much slap bang in the middle of the state. And it's kind of got like a desert climate. In the 90s, which is where our story takes place, it right. had a population of just under 60,000 people. Oh. Las Cruces bowling alley is obviously where our tragic story occurred and it was a family-run business yeah. with patriarch Ron Sienak opening the establishment. Now, on Saturday, February 10th, 1990, at 8am, the manager of the bowling alley, 34-year-old Stephanie Sienak, Ron's daughter, was at work in her office before opening up for the day, going through the receipts from the night before, cashing up, all that.
0: Mm.
1: She'd brought along with her 12-year-old daughter Melissa Repas and Melissa's friend, 13-year-old Amy Hauser. The two young teens were there to supervise the bowling alley's daycare. The only other person in the alley at the time was the cook, Ida Holguin. They're all setting up for the day, mm. and Stephanie's brother, Steve, he drops by to pick up his backpack that he had left the night before. He works there too. Yeah. He's quite surprised to find the bowling alley doors unlocked before opening, so he says to Stephanie, you know, you should really close those. And with that, he leaves. Melissa and Amy, they're waiting for 9am to roll around, they're a bit bored, start to get hungry. Yeah. So they decide to grab some snacks from the vending machines. Whilst they're browsing the choices, they run into two men that they don't know or recognise and ask them if they need any help. Instead of answering the girls, the two guys pull out guns and steer them towards the office, where Melissa's mum, Stephanie, is working. They tell them to stay there and at around 8.20am, they burst into the kitchen pointing a twenty-two calibre pistol at Ida and order her two towards the office. The two gunmen then make Stephanie let them into the safe before ordering the two adults and two teens to lie down on the floor whilst they steal the money that's inside. However, while they're doing this, the bowling alley's mechanic, 26-year-old Stephen Turan, turns up, along with his two daughters. Oh, God. Six-year-old Paula Holgey who was his stepdaughter and no relation to Ida Holguin, the cook, and two-year-old Valerie Turan. He hadn't been able to find a babysitter for the day, so had decided to use the daycare that would be supervised by Melissa and Amy. Mm. So he rocks up and he can't see anyone. It's deserted. So he makes his way to the manager's office. Yeah. And, of course, he walks right into the middle of this terrifying situation. Yeah. Where Stephen and his two young children then join the other four as hostages. The men finish robbing the safe and start going through the filing cabinets. I mean, they're pulling out paperwork and documents, just everything. And Ida says that she remembers it seeming as though they're looking for something. Okay. Eventually they stop and it's assumed they'll now leave. Mm. With the money and whatever else they were looking for, presuming they found it. But that isn't to be the case. Mm. Shockingly, the men turn to the victims and shoot them all several times, including shooting them all at least once execution style, at point-blank range in the head. Wow. That includes the two-year-old. Yeah. So who was in there at the minute? You've got Stephanie, the manager. Yeah. You've got her daughter, Melissa, and her friend, Amy. Yeah. Ida, the cook. Yeah. You've got Stephen, the mechanic,
2: and his stepdaughter, Paula, and his daughter, Valerie. So really, there, you've got four children. Yeah. The oldest one is 13. Yeah. And then you've got... The rest are adults, but they're still quite young. They're all under the age of 35. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah. yeah. And they've all just been shot. And in a family-run business as well, which I think makes that... So not only are you going back into work in a place that your employees have just been murdered in, you're also going back into a place of work where your family's been murdered there.
1: Yeah, it's, it's pretty That's, brutal. Yeah,
2: that is horrific. But
1: after they shoot them all, they then set fire to the papers on the desk and flee. At 8.33am, Detective Chuck Franco of the Las Cruces Police Department was just starting his work day. He'd come into the station and put on a pot of coffee, ready to see what this Saturday in February would throw at him. But I don't think anything could have prepared him for the call that was about to come in. And here is where we're going to listen to the audio from that 911 call. And it's a little heads up, feel free to skip this if you need to, and rejoin us in about, it's about four minutes long.
0: Well, slow down, slow down. We were all shot in hold up. Okay. Where oh, are I'm you at? Twelve one 1 East Amador, Las well, Cruces Bowl. Las Cruces Bowl? Yes. Okay. Please. And there were, there were shots fired? Yes. Oh. All of us were hurt. Huh? All of us were hurt. I think I'm the only one conscious. All of you were hurt? Okay. We'll get an ambulance rolling. Please. Okay. What's your name? Melissa Repas. Please hurry. Hey, okay, Melissa. We've got him dispatched. Did you see who did it? No. Hang on. Take a deep breath. We've got patrol units in route. How many people are hurt? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven people are hurt? Yes, I think. I seven somebody's hurt. It okay. Hurts. Okay, Melissa. It hurts. It hurts. Okay. Melissa, I've got an ambulance, and I've got the police officers in route. They'll be with you just shortly. Okay. Okay? You didn't see what any of the Mom, men were I wearing? All of our money. You didn't I see didn't what mean. any kind of the men were wearing or anything? No. Nothing, huh? They just walked in? Uh-huh. Do you know if they were black men, white men? They were both black. Two black men? Yeah. Okay. No, they've left. Two black males. you for Okay, okay. It's okay, Melissa. There's a fire, too. There's a fire? Right on the desk. They're going to burn us up. Are the men still there? I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. They put us in the office. They put you in the office? Yes, I need a fire engine, too. Please help me. Okay, Melissa. She said they locked them in the office. She doesn't know if they're still there or not. The door is open. There's a fire. It's on Amador, (sighs) Yes. Can please you help. smell smoke, Melissa? Yes, I can see it. Okay. Can so I get the fire extinguisher? Fire department, too? Yes. She says she smells smoke. They may have lit the building on fire. No, it is on fire. It is on fire. It is. Okay, Melissa. Can I go get Stand the... by Utility 1? Oh, ow. Oh. Oh. Okay, Melissa, we've got them coming, hon. We've got them coming. if somebody there? Oh, my mommy. Okay, Melissa, there's a police officer there now, okay? There he is? Yes, there he is. He's going to try and find you. We're in the office. Can I have 33 traffic? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Gonna die. Oh my God. Hold on, Melissa. We've got the ambulance coming. They're just down the street. Huh? She advises all seven are shot, they're injured, they're in the office. Where's the office at, Melissa? In the door, in the first desk, and then you take a right and we're right in the building. Okay. She says you go in, in the first desk, take a right, and they're right there at the office. Okay, I'm giving the directions on how to get to you, to the police officers that are there. Oh my God, please help me. They're helping you, Melissa. We've got them rolling. Okay? you got to be brave, got to be strong now. Okay? Oh, God. It's going to burn us right now. Okay. Can you see flames? Yeah. Okay. It's burning us. Okay. Oh, I got bullets in my feet. <laughs> okay. The oh. bullets in my head. You both the bullets in your head, too? <laughs> I can't. None of them are going you. I'm still here. Go ahead. I hear the officers telling you to get out. Get I out. Can't Police
2: officer, yeah. get out. Yeah. Then get out. Okay. Okay? Wow. Yeah, that's pretty That is intense. I mean, take your hat off to her. I think I would have been a lot more panicky than she was in that situation if someone yeah. had come in. When you, I mean, if you, if we're not just thinking about
1: I mean, obviously, it's so hard to it's, listen to. Yeah, it and is. And when she's, like, saying, to, to and, like, my mummy, yeah. please, and I'm gonna die, like, oh, God. Like, even now, it makes me want to cry. I know, it's horrible. And I've listened to that so many times now,
2: but, yeah. Um, yeah, the eloquence she has. Yes. She is very, very good. She tells them everything that they need to know. And she, like, stops and talking when they're, like talking yeah. to each other like she's not she's not really panicking she's like they answer the phone and she's like I need police and an ambulance and I am here yeah and I like, need yeah. and and I need a fire engine can I get the fire extinguisher yeah there is I can see flames I can smell smoke there are seven people injured oh but when she's counting them and I know obviously she's 12 like she knows how to count obviously yeah.
1: it's not like it's not yeah. it, she's not counting them cuz she can't but it's just she's it, I think it brings forward
2: how even yeah. though, like that, she is still a child. It's just yeah. like it's quite a child-like thing to do. Thing to do, and she's counting her friends and her family. She's, and one of those is a two-year-old. Yeah,
1: and I also think as well at the end when they're saying
2: come, and she's like, I can't. They're not conscious. Yeah, like when they're like shouting at her, get out, and she's like, there's bullets in my feet. I can't.
1: But like, I just, I just think of the amount of. So I, when I listen to a lot of true crime cases, the amount of times I've heard. First of all, people just talking over responders. And I get that. Like, I'm not charging oh, them for it. No, I would be the just same. I saying, would be a
2: complete flap.
1: Yeah. Or like, they're going like, help me, help me, help me. And obviously you get that. But it's, it's obviously not I, helpful yeah. to whoever's trying yeah, to help yeah, you. Yeah. Like, I can't help
2: you unless you tell yeah. me this. Yeah. And
1: you hear that. And then just hear a child be so eloquent. And also, like, the amount of people, and probably maybe even myself included, I've luckily never been in a situation, no. would just, like, get out as soon as they can. But yeah. the fact that she's, like, there and she's like, I can't, they're not moving. Yeah, like, like I'm not leaving the, like these people. I mean, obviously one of them's her mum and everyone's her close friend. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's intense. And you can see why it stayed with me, this case. I oh, think. my God. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, miraculously, and despite being shot five times, as we hear her say. Yeah. 12-year-old Melissa Repas was still alive. mm and as we can hear, emergency services
2: rushed to the bowling alley. I mean, how long was that call? Four minutes, and they yeah. were there by the end of it. Yeah, that's incredible.
1: Unfortunately, 26-year-old Stephen Turan, mm. his six-year-old stepdaughter Paula Holguin, and 13-year-old Amy Hauser were all pronounced dead at the scene. Two-year-old Valerie Turan was rushed to Memorial General Hospital, but sadly, she too died just 14 five minutes later from her wounds. Oh. Detective Franco said, quote, "My first thought was, what kind of animal could do this to kids?" End mm. quote. Amongst the first responders was also Detective Rose Marquez-Mays, who initially thought that this was a drill due to the severity of the situation and just like because of everything that was going on.
2: Yeah, I mean, but- you got fire, ambulance, and police all in one. Yeah. So she yeah. was like, "This has to be a, yeah. a drill. It has to
1: be staged." But she stated that upon seeing the deceased body of Paula, the six-year-old, she realised that this was no mock scene. No. However, due to Melissa's bravery, herself, her mum Stephanie and the cook Ida all survived that day. Her courage saved three lives and also gave two-year-old Valerie a chance at survival, even if that wasn't to be the case. Mm. And as, as we said, I just think Melissa's
2: amazing. I know that was such like although it was hard to listen to it was was also incredible that yeah you can be in that much pain be that scared and still save three people's lives yeah I might to say my hat goes off to us to put lightly but I oh god yeah also to even in like at that age think I need to ring yeah like I need to find a phone and I need to ring. Rather than just of, I need to run. Yeah, rather than or be crying over your mum being like, "Mum, wake up, wake up." Exactly. Like, whereas I know like some I mean, people's initial reaction would be. Yeah, and mum probably up, would just be. sit
1: there and cry. Yeah. I mean, if we think about the fact that these two men apparently met Melissa and Amy at eight twenty, and this call was at eight thirty three. Yeah. So that's how quickly she reacted. Yeah. When everything happened,
2: and. Like, for that to have happened first, like, they met these scary men. Mm. They took them, held them hostage. Then more people joined the scene. And then you can, like, if she was conscious that whole time, you're probably counting the gunshots. Yeah. How could you not? Yeah. And, I mean, she knew she'd been shot five times. Yeah. And she knew there were seven people in the room. You're gonna... Yeah, they were all shot multiple times. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Whilst medics worked tirelessly to save the lives of the three survivors, police got to work setting up ten roadblocks around the city of Las Cruces within the hour, screening anyone and everyone trying to leave. They even involved the US Customs Service, the Army and Border Patrol, who helped by searching overhead with planes and helicopters. Police also began canvassing the neighbourhood with one witness telling them he'd heard gunshots from across the street but he didn't think anything of it until the emergency services began arriving. Which
2: seems really crazy to us, but we're two English girls. And I yeah. feel like
1: we, I've never seen a real gun, I don't think.
2: No, and I don't think I've actually like ever heard, like you hear stuff and you're like, oh, it's probably just fireworks. But that's the thing. Maybe we
1: would ignore it because yeah, we'd because, be like, oh, it's a car
2: backfaring. Yeah. or it's, Because we yeah. don't expect it. I mean, a, lit- a firework literally went off about 10 minutes ago when and we it- were like, oh i mean I, I could see it from the window so i knew it was a firework but, but um
0: yeah, yeah but, it
2: happened in the middle of the day the other day and like it made me jump but then i could see the smoke and i was like okay that was yeah. a firework but if I it mean, was a gun i don't know if i would be able to tell the difference no and i feel like we're able to be
1: like oh it's so crazy but i also don't know what last cruises was like i'm not sure what the, yeah i
2: but, mean you don't get loads of gun crime in england No. Which which I'm very thankful for. Yeah,
1: we don't have just guns about. You remember Stephanie's brother Steve, who came to pick up his backpack? Yeah. He said that as he was driving by the bowling alley, he had seen two Hispanic men walking towards the front of the building. He watched as the older man handed the younger man a small briefcase. The older guy then stopped and squatted down as Steve drove past and made eye contact with him. Another witness came forward... He had been on a ladder across the street painting when he saw the same two men, but this time they were running away from the bowling alley, heading south. Now, a description was able to be given to police, and from this they did create a facial composite of the suspects. These were created by Lois Gibson. I also just want to take this time to clear up that I believe Melissa did later clarify it; she meant Hispanic men yeah. rather than black men, as you hear her say in the audio. But I,
2: you're panicking. yeah. Also, you got to think of the, like, also panicking, but also they probably tried to not show their faces.
1: Yeah, and, yeah, so we we
2: don't know. I mean, also... But
1: she did clarify. Yeah. So I'll put these composites on our socials. You can check them out for yourselves. Both suspects are described as Mexican, but speaking perfect English. The older man was said to be around 45 to 50 years old, with thinning salt and pepper hair, and had a dark complexion roughly 5 foot 7 and 140 pounds. 10 stones, not very big. No, 5 foot seven's not very big. The older man also spoke with a slight Spanish accent. The younger man was Hispanic too, around 30 years old with dark wavy hair, and at the time he had a moustache and light coloured brown eyes. He was 5 foot 10 and 170 pounds, which is 12 stone. So okay. still quite slim. Yeah. He spoke with no detectable Spanish accent. Mm. And actually there are two sketches, so there's one of them...
2: Then and then they did an updated one 30 oh, years later. What they think they like Yeah, and um, we'll put those up. Yeah. Does do they know the relation of the men? Like, that no. there's not a huge age gap, so they're not like father son, but they're also about ten years.
1: Yeah. So you've got one who's forty five to fifty, and one who's about thirty. So, mm.
2: yeah. So not father son, but mm. makes you think if they chose like gun crime of women and children, because as you said, they are quite. Small men. True. True. Okay, we're gonna go somewhere a bit more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mm. suppose. I. I mean, it's one of the theories. Unfortunately. Yeah. Ida stated that she is sure that she had seen these two suspects at the bowling alley prior to the shootings, oh, saying wow. that they seem to be analysing the customers and watching the daily operations of the place. So mm. they were scoping it out.
2: Yeah. This. Also, I don't feel like you do this unplanned. Like, no. you don't... Like, this isn't a burglary gone wrong. This is... Yeah. That maybe more people than they anticipated to be there, but they went in there with... They knew something they, about yeah, the, they, the operation. They knew they were going to burn whatever files that they found. They knew that they were going to rob, probably murder well, someone. It's,
1: it's interesting you say it, because the police came to the same conclusion. And yeah. And we will... We
2: were talking oh, about that. Oh, I should be a detective. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, time for career change. <laughs> so authorities also received a tip from one woman who claimed that the men had actually stayed with her after the murders, adding that the killings themselves were over drugs. This woman was herself apparently a drug user, mm. and it's stated that when she was sober, she recanted her statement, and it led nowhere.
2: It's interesting that it's about drugs at a family-run bowling alley. Uh, we'll get to it. Oh, here we go.
1: So, in fact, during the aftermath of this, the police received more than 50 calls an hour to their tip line. Wow. But why did this happen? So, at first, it does seem like a robbery gone wrong when you first look at it. Yeah. What with the men making Stephanie open the safe for them? But it turns out that they actually only took $4,000. And apparently they actually left some money behind as well.
2: Okay, so they weren't there for the money.
1: No, it doesn't look like it's purely monetary game. No. Why did they then attempt to murder seven people as well if it was a robbery gone wrong? Yeah.
2: Also, why were they looking so intently through the files? Exactly. If you're just getting rid of witnesses, I don't feel like you need to kill a two-year-old. No. I feel
1: like that's... I mean, I can't wrap my head around it, but mm. I feel like that's indicative of something being very planned. Yeah. And
2: being quite cold. Mm. Also... Everyone was shot multiple times. Mm. They made sure that they had enough bullets to kill seven people. They weren't with shooting multiple. warning shots. They no. were. They were, yeah. they, they were shots to kill. And they had enough to, yeah. And they said a lot of them were at point blank.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You have an intention there. Yeah. And you're not just shooting randomly. No. So it is possible, even though they cased it out, but it is possible that the suspects perhaps didn't expect anyone to be at the bowling alley. Mm-hmm. Because they weren't wearing any sort of disguise. Yeah. But again, I think that leads to the fact that they didn't intend to leave any witnesses. Yes. And they also knew that someone had to be
2: there because they walked in through open doors. Yeah. Also, if they'd been analysing the day before, they knew manager would go in. Well, they're not sure if it's the day before, but at some point they were analysing. Oh, yeah, but if they, they've gone in, they analysed to see, obviously someone's got to open up and lock up. Yeah. And There's... I think everyone knows that with a business... Yeah, it might open at nine, but people are going to be there from seven. Oh, my God. Yeah. And if they serve food as well, like there's got to be a chef in there prepping. Well, sadly, Ida actually wasn't meant to even be there that day. Oh, really? I can't remember the
1: circumstances that brought her in, but she wasn't scheduled to to work. So, as you said, the Mm. survivors remember the men going through the filing cabinet. And Ida said it seemed like they were looking for something in particular, but what for? So, one theory states that it was all drug related. Yep. Stephanie Sinak's youngest brother, RJ, so she's got Steve. Yeah. RJ was the youngest. He tended the bar at the bowling alley, and according to his friends and family, he had a bit of a drug problem, Uh. namely cocaine. And witnesses told police that many of his drug deals actually took place at the bowling alley itself. Oh, wow. Which led some people to speculate that perhaps he got mixed up with the wrong crowd or Mm. with drug cartels. But this theory was investigated, but police could not find anything any evidence that linked the murders to rj and he was unable to provide any information that could lead to the capture of the suspects and unfortunately and sadly he died in 1997 um, of a drug overdose authorities also looked into the bowling alley owner ron Zenak, stephanie's father Mm. he was said to have money problems he was known to spend recklessly And rumoured to be involved in shady business deals with equally shady characters. I read an article that stated that police did investigate a possible tie to a population of Cubans that lived near the bowling alley, but that Mm -hmm. was literally one article that mentioned that. Okay, so not a real in-depth. No, and that's all I could find on that. Some people have said that the composite sketches look more Cuban than Than Hispanic, Hispanic. so I thought I'd include it. Yeah, fair enough. Detective Franco, he believes that the gunmen were professionals. Stating, the shooters were initially thought to be from Las Cruces, but information later led us to believe they're from out of state and sent here to do a job. Now, the only information he gives as to why he thinks this is due to the type of weapon used, 24 calibre shotgun, how the victims were shot, point blank range, yeah. and because they tried to get rid of the evidence. Yeah. But I think there's also more that the police aren't saying as to why they think this. I think They're keeping some cards close to the chest. Yeah. Franco also thinks perhaps the killings were meant to send a message. So perhaps then Ron had wronged one of these shady people. Who sends a message by killing children? Some of them weren't meant to be there, though, were they? Oh, I know, but still. People think that perhaps they were sent to take payment, take revenge by hurting him, his business, or his loved ones, yeah. Ron had actually been living at the bowling alley at the time. However, he was out of town in Arizona on the morning of the murders. So, maybe he was the target all along. Or... And they were just wrong place, wrong time. Or maybe they knew he was going to be away and they knew that this was where they could hurt him the most. More, yeah. Franco also states that Ron Sienak's lack of cooperation led police to suspect him, with his behaviour after the events arousing suspicion of the public. Mm. So, he actually reopened the bowling alley just six days after the shootings. Oh, my God. Yeah. But I... while I find this odd, I just want to say, I feel like it's really hard to judge someone. Yeah. I don't know if I would personally do it, but no. we know Ron wasn't good with money. No. And can... we know he'd just lost money. Yeah, he couldn't take the financial hit. Exactly. And he was probably going to lose business because pe- yeah. people aren't going to want to take their families there. Couples no. on dates aren't going to want to go to a literal murder scene.
2: No. Um, being weirdos like us.
1: Yeah, (laughs) and yeah so maybe he just didn't have a choice maybe he had to get his business back up and also maybe he needed to throw himself into work
2: yeah you stay busy to
1: otherwise you just can end up in a pit so even though when i initially heard that i was like that is
2: Mm, weird
1: way too quick but i i do think when you take a step back and you look at it and you also think hang on this man has just had the unimaginable happen to him I don't, I don't want to be the one to judge him. Mm. He did end up selling the bowling alley in December of 1990, so later that year, stating that the business was $1.5 million in debt. I did see elsewhere that he was forced to sell it at an auction because it was $2 million so, in debt, yeah. but either way... It was sold. It had to because be Because he was in debt, yeah. And in the end, Ron was thoroughly investigated by law enforcement and they were unable to find any evidence that he had knowledge or involvement in the crime or that he was engaged in any illegal activity. In terms of physical evidence, there was very little at the scene.
2: So, mm. obviously, I mean, when... they set on fire, there's not going to yeah. be a lot left.
1: Well, yeah, so when police officers first arrived, they were confronted with flames, already destroying crucial evidence. Yeah. Firefighters then used fire extinguishers, obviously, yeah. to tackle the blaze. It's reported that some first responders dragged bodies to safer areas, which... Obviously saved lives, maybe. Yeah, but, but also... Evidence-wise, it's not great.
2: Yeah, also, so I don't, I don't blame them, but... No, I think I keep forgetting, like, how long ago 1990 was.
1: Yeah, she... I keep thinking, like, oh, yeah, 10 yeah, years yeah, ago.
2: Yeah. No, it's, like, we're in 2020. It's 31 years yeah. ago. So Yeah. Yeah. Technology we have now.
1: Oh, yeah, and that's the other thing that they say, but I'll get to that. Ah. Detective Marquez Mays also said... I believe the police officers were desperate to get the bodies out so they could save lives. They weren't sure at the time who was alive and who was deceased. Mm. Which I think gives us an idea of what they walked into.
2: Yes. I mean, yeah, if you walk into a burning building, your first instinct is going to be get everyone out of here, whether they look alive or not. Just get everyone out.
1: After all of that obviously took place, medics had to, of course attend to the gunshot victims Mm. first and foremost and once everything had been done and police could get in there to investigate the scene there just wasn't anything left to work with yeah police detective Mark Myers who has worked this case since 2002 said quote it was a very complicated crime scene they lit the office on fire that's a clear indication they were thinking about destroying evidence they had left behind they Mm. weren't going to leave any witnesses no matter how young I have no
2: doubt when they left, they thought everyone in there was dead, end quote. Yeah, Which just like what we said. I mean, I feel like the fire was destroying evidence and also was another little extra. Well, if someone is still alive, they're alive, not going to yeah. be.
1: In the 1990s, as we said, forensic evidence focused mainly on fingerprints. But this was a bowling alley a public everywhere. place. Yeah. <laughs> There's an abundance of fingerprints just everywhere and it's impossible to tell what ones were significant and yeah. what were just customers. Yeah. So, where are we today? Well, 31 years ago, almost 32. Yes, 1990 was almost 32 years ago. No arrests have been made and wow. we almost appear no closer to finding out who carried out this
2: horrific crime and why. Wow. So this is a unsolved Com- completely completely getting solved. that's mental
1: Las Cruces Police Department have made public appeals throughout the years they've updated the sketches they say it's still very much an open case with Detective Amador Martinez who is now the lead on the case stating that they still receive tips particularly around the anniversary of the massacre as you'd expect mm. and that they actively pursue every single one. Oh, that's good any DNA evidence they find they also send to Santa Fe to their crime labs for testing mm And he states he has spent hours going through evidence to follow up on leads. Some of the police theorise that the men fled to Mexico soon after the shootings, whilst others think that they laid low locally. But pretty much all working the case believe that the men had help, meaning that someone out there knows something and just isn't saying. Mm. Detective Marquez Mays made a plea stating, How can you live with yourself? It's been so many years. Think of the family that was left behind. Come forth. Just get it off your chest. Preach.
2: Yeah. I mean, you think after that long. Just, yeah. Even if you just give, even, just, I don't know, just some sort of closure. I think as well, like, it's exactly what they said. Like, you don't do that just on a whim. Exactly. They were there for a reason. They had I don't an think, intention. Yeah, I don't think it was their personal vendetta. It was no, someone else's. Someone, and they're probably
1: just hit men. Yeah. In February 2020, on what was the 30th anniversary of the murders, Detective Martinez held a news conference about the case. And he stated he was combing through 50 to 60 tips received within a month after that. Wow. He was careful not to go into too much detail. But he did say that these tips name people who haven't been charged and are just suspects with some even naming past suspects that had been looked into before. He went on to confirm that they are going to re-examine all evidence and all suspects again. Detective Martinez also said in that conference that had the shooting happened today, police would have used newer techniques to preserve evidence. Mm-hmm. But this just wasn't available in 1990. No. I mean, to this day, those investigating the case do not have a DNA profile of the suspects to work with at all. No. But Martinez does believe that one day, with the advance in technology police will be able to take the little physical evidence that they do have and find a way to create a match or a profile to finally solve the puzzle. And that is the last I can find in terms of updates and progress in the case. Wow. So uh, when was
2: the last update? Yeah, February 2020. Well, March 2020. Okay, so not that long ago, but still over You'd expect a year. Something to have come. I've, yeah, Yeah. And I think a case with such a high profile, especially in the States, someone would... I mean it, it rocked this town. Oh my god, yeah. Um and I can imagine.
1: When I I mean we'll put the I'll show you the photos that mm. I'm gonna put
2: up what well, we're gonna put up on our socials. <laughs> um but I mean this wasn't a huge bowling alley. Like this wasn't a huge No, huge I imagine town. with like a family run, I'm kind of like in my head imagining, you know, when you see in like American Films like yeah. the old school, like maybe like five ten lanes. Marked. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. like a not like a ballplex. Yeah, kind of exactly. Thing. Yeah, yeah, with like a cinema. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. It's literally just a little family run business. Yeah, I mean they've got a crash where they keep kids that's run by kids. kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: survivor Ida Holgain. Uh, she was the cook, if you remember. Yeah, told KVIA TV of her doubts around police efforts in an interview. About the thirtieth anniversary of the shooting, she asked, "Do they really have the case open?" That's what I want to know, and I, I, I can't blame her for asking yeah. that. I mean, it does seem like the police are doing all they all they can, but I, I can see. It yeah, no side.
2: it's difficult from both sides of it. Yeah, because no one's they, having a good time. Yeah, they can only investigate with what they have, and. But you because, can understand
1: that she just...
2: Yeah, because it's been open for so long, they don't have much. Yeah. But also, it would be horrible to experience something like that and not get any justice from it. Like, yeah, no, no justice, no closure. You don't know who did it still. You can't feel safe. Yeah. You're like knowing those men are still walking around.
1: Yeah, and whoever ordered those men. Yeah. Ida says that she still suffers with PTSD. I'm
2: not surprised.
1: And headaches as uh. a result of what she endured on that day when she was shot three times in the head. Oh my
2: God. How do you even survive that? Like that's. Well,
1: after which she was in hospital for six months before going to rehab in Dallas to relearn everything. Mm. And I think this is something we can both imagine ex- yeah. exactly. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah.
2: So, a bit of background I'm a nurse. <laughs> I am a physio
1: assistant. Um, and we both met on a major trauma ward. Yeah. Where we, we worked together. And I'm in no way can I say that I can understand what she's going through, but I, oh God, I know no. what this journey might have looked like yeah. for her. She said that she also spent years struggling with the question of why she survived, why God let her live. Mm. I mean, three bullets to the head. Yeah. That's incredible to survive she, that. And I think she struggled with why did I survive and the kids didn't. Mm. But she said that she thinks she's
2: finally found the answer, and that is in her granddaughter. Oh, so good. I'm, oh. I'm happy for her. Yeah. Also, she was still really young. Like I she know was 30, we're, we're talking yeah. about kids, but yeah, she was we're like both our age. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I'm pretty sure anyone who said that, like anyone in their 30s, was too young to die. Yeah. So every single person there was too young to die. It's horrific yeah. that it's children, but even the adults it's were just horrific. Only just adults. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. They still had their whole lives ahead of them. Yeah.
1: Unfortunately, Stephanie Senak would pass away in 1999 as a result of complications from her injuries sustained that day. Oh, no. And in the nine years before her death, she suffered with PTSD. Mm. And understandably, was afraid to leave her home despite reports that she she did move away from the area. Yeah. But she still struggled to leave her home
2: because... I mean, yeah, how could you trust anyone or anything anymore? Yeah.
1: Audrey Turan, Stephen's widow, lost not only her husband that day, but her two young daughters. Her daughters who were only two and six years old. She said that she feels sadness when she sees friends posting Facebook photos of their grandchildren, thinking how she might be a grandmother herself today if Paula and and Valerie were still alive. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, makes me want to cry.
2: I know, that is
1: horrible. (sighs) Her sister-in-law, Veronica... Mm. Told Las Cruz's Sun News that Audrey never returned to the home she shared with her family. And states yeah. that on her first date with Stephen's brother, Anthony, the pair ended up spending the night comforting a distraught Audrey. So they were just about to head out the door and she called.
2: And said, This has and, happened.
1: Well, no, but, this was like three months later in uh, May yeah. and she just called in an a state and they went over and spent the night with her on their first date. Aww. Paula. Six year old was reportedly a bubbly girly girl whose favourite colour was fuchsia. Oh. She loved everything with ribbons and bows. Oh. As every six year old girl should. Well Valerie well, what you're into. <laughs> yeah. Valerie was apparently more reserved, just like her father. Oh. And a tomboy who liked to wear jeans and anything that was blue, which is more me as a kid. Yeah. Well, I was a bit of both. But... Yeah. <laughs> Stephen Turan, he was a first lieutenant in the army before becoming the mechanic. who was apparently also a rocker, which I love, (laughs) passing down his music taste to his younger brother, Anthony, whose daughter, Elise, said she now listens to her uncle's Van Halen vinyl, which has been passed down to her, so that she too can join in the jam-out sessions (laughs) her dad and uncle used to have that have been warmly recounted to her. Anthony Turan actively campaigns for justice for his brother and nieces. In a speech, he said, quote... They laughed and they cried, and they were people who were part of the community. They're not a statistic. They're people that lived there who didn't deserve to be taken away like they were. He goes on to say, I can see my brother. I look at his picture. He's looking at me in my eyes, and I can hear him telling me, you know what? Yeah, it sucks for all of us. But bro, do something about my daughters. Do something for my daughters. They did not deserve this. Mark Woods is 13-year-old victim Amy Houser's youngest brother. He was just four years old when she was killed, and he says he doesn't remember much. Mm. But he remembers sitting on her lap and playing Nintendo together when when he was young. Cute. Mark echoes what the Turan family say, saying that all he wants is justice, he says, for his mother's sake, because she deserves the closure. Mm. I couldn't find anything online, really, about Melissa. Um, regarding where or how she is now and yeah. I, I completely respect her, her oh, right God, to privacy yeah. but I think I can speak for all of us when I say that I just hope wherever she is and whatever she's doing that in spite of everything she's happy and healthy and f- and just thriving
2: yeah I mean I can understand why she wouldn't want to be on the internet after yeah. everything that is on the internet about her
1: yeah like I give you
2: google her name why this is the you... first thing that's going to come up. Like... Exactly. And I just hope she knows that she's amazing. Yeah. That's... she. I hope she knows she saved people's yeah. lives. And,
1: you know, important to remember that her mum died nine years after it. Mm. She would have only been, what, 21? Yeah. So, so she, she still, still be... lost her mum after it.
2: Yeah. Because of it. And although she made the phone call, she did still get shot in the head. She probably, and well, definitely would have had symptoms from that as well. Yeah, like, I would have am sure she
1: struggled with PTSD as well. Oh, God, no.
2: Yeah, and just like the programming and processing things. And yeah. if they were like, she got shot on her feet, she probably had to go loads, so much surgery at such a young yeah, age. I can't imagine.
1: Bless her. And as I said, the Las Cruces Police Department say they're still actively investigating this case. They state that it is in no way a cold case, it's very active. Mm. And they urge, anyone with information, and we urge anyone with any information, anything at all, to get in touch. There's a $30,000 reward for information that helps to identify the person's responsible. You can call Crime Stoppers anonymously on 1-800-222-8477 or you can go to nmcrimestoppers.org that's nm as in New Mexico, crimestoppers.org to submit a tip there. If you know Anything at all, please get in touch with the police. Yeah. The victims and their families deserve, at the very least, closure, but they really deserve justice. Yeah,
2: and we will post these numbers and... Everywhere. Yeah, with this when we post it. To see the composite sketches, yeah, and anything else related to the crime, yeah.
1: It'll be on Instagram, Twitter, Twitter, Facebook. Yeah just search true crime coven pod mm. and you should be able to find us you can also get in touch via email it's true crime coven pod or one word all lowercase at
2: <laughs> gmail.com so what's your what's your take on on that i mean that was hard to listen to yeah. but very good i don't actually i don't think i've actually heard of much about this and it's case crazy before. that it's not well more, I hadn't heard of it before no it's mad that it's not more one and I mean I guess it was before our time yeah but then you th- I, obviously
1: I know people talk about Ted Bundy and people talk yeah. about Jeffrey Dahmer and they were before our time
2: but yeah it's and I know I guess that's because it's it's the one person killing yeah multi- I often multiple think, victims at different times
1: yeah I often think when things are unsolved but there's not mystery around who the victim is yeah like if it's unsolved and it's like who's this jane doe it might get more traction yeah but if yeah, it's yeah. unsolved and i just don't think people has, like people like things to be neatly wrapped up in a bow yes Yeah, yeah yeah and um, we will definitely be covering cases that are more neatly wrapped, wrapped up in, in very disgusting horrible bows but mm. I, yeah, I know a lot of people don't like unsolved cases yeah. and are probably mad about me. Well, not mad, I think they feel that strongly. <laughs> but um, are probably going to be like, why did they start on an unsolved one? But I hope you can see the importance of this being out there. Yeah. And also, like I say, why it stuck with me.
2: Yeah, it is a very deep, heavy story, but also very good to hear in a way, that, like just to be aware that it's out there. Yeah. And, and someone's got to know something. Yeah. I mean, that to me personally sounds like it was definitely contract killing i think you look at this case and you do think it's definitely like it was it was planned they went in there with an agenda they went in there to find something yeah they took some money maybe the money that they were owed from yeah it does seem weird to me why they didn't take the full amount i mean i know maybe it wasn't monetary
1: gain but i mean i'm not a criminal but if i'm gonna take five thousand i'm might as well take as well. seven thousand. Like yeah, I mean, and if I'm gonna shoot people in the head, I might as well take a lot of money. Like, yeah, because... might as
2: well just take it all. And the fact that they investigated so many things, like was it the brother and his drugs, was it the owner and his financial, or was it just something completely? Yeah. Like how does no one know anything? How was there no evidence? Someone does. I really think. Yeah, someone... someone does. And it's mind-baffling to me that if it is one of the family members that knows anything that can be related, why would you not come forward? That's why I don't think it is, because I just yeah. feel like you would. You would. You, you, yeah. Surely after your grief, 30 years, your the, gr- yeah, the grief and guilt would kick in and you would be like, I've got to say something.
1: I mean, Anthony Turan, uh, Stephen, Turan's brother, he does believe that perhaps these people are dead because they were clearly not, not in the best circles and it is likely mm. that, yeah, life expectancy yeah, in that sort just... of world is probably a lot lower. Yeah. And what one's, Guys would be 60, no, wait,
2: No, if he, was, if he was 45, 40, yeah. 50, then he could be 80, 80 now. Yeah, and yeah, the other one was only 10, 15 years younger. So, yeah. so a
1: lot of people do speculate that the actual guys who did the tunes, probably, due yeah. to lifestyle. Maybe yes,
2: dead. yeah, but still someone, I don't think they, that obviously, I don't think it was personal to them. No, by the sounds of it. Because if it was personal to them, I think they would have made, they would have taken more money, they would have made more of an effort to burn the whole thing down. Yeah. So I think they were just there. They were told, get rid of these files, get rid of witnesses. And the money for them was probably a bonus. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's probably how they got paid.
1: So I wanted to end on a quote from Mm. Veronica Turan, Anthony's wife. Anthony made Stephen a promise when Stephen passed away that he would do everything within his ability to get this solved or to have justice. And just because justice hasn't been solved yet, we can't give up. We have to keep trying.